Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to, to read it, to hold it, to, to just um, take in from it. And I pray that as we do today, that you'd speak to us through it and let us be responsive to your word. And uh, I pray that um, we would be able to take what we gain from your word today and just live it this week for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have um, paperback Bibles in the back, and I'm going to ask the ushers to come on up with some. If you didn't bring one or don't have one with you, just catch the eye of, of one of our ushers and, and would love to have you have one of those in your hand this morning as we dig into John chapter 7 together. And if you don't own one, take it home with you. Um, these are are easy to get a hold of, and, and so we'd, we'd love for you just to take it home. But we'll be in John chapter 7 this morning, and uh, we'll be on page 745 if you, uh, if you want to just have a page number. So uh, this is an amazing book that we get to hold in our hands. I, I, you know, you look through uh, church history, and, and you see what it took to put the Bible into the hands of ordinary people like you and me, and it is an absolute treasure. Uh, this book is actually a collection of books. It's 66 books under one cover. Now, breaking down into the Old Testament, 39 books, New Testament, 27 books, and uh, it was written over the span of 1,500 years by more than 40 human authors writing on three continents in three languages. And yet it doesn't contradict itself, and it has a singular theme of the glory of God revealed to his creation, ultimately through Jesus Christ, who came to be our sin-bearer, took our sin to the cross so that we might have eternal life and is coming again. All of it ties together in this amazing book that we hold in our hand. The New Testament, those last 27 books, introduces us to a new literary style, a new genre of literature called gospel. Uh, this idea of gospel had not existed in the world of literature up until we got four Gospels in our New Testament. And uh, the first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic, meaning seen together. Uh, the Greek word uh, soon, meaning together or with, and optic, meaning seeing, right? So synoptic means seen together. So these three Gospels, the first three, are really to be seen together because each of them is slightly different from the other two because each of them was written to or for a particular audience. The Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a, a Jew, Matthew Levi, and he was writing primarily to Jews to say the Messiah has come. So it's, it's full of fulfilled Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Christ. Mark's gospel, written primarily for Greeks, sort of looks like a Greek drama, a Greek play. And uh, the action is fast, and, and he uses the word immediately a lot. 
And uh, it's also been called by some Peter's gospel because of the close relationship between Peter and John Mark. And so you see some unique features of Peter in Mark's gospel as well. Luke's gospel was written from the perspective of a a historian. Uh, Luke uh, was a physician. Uh, He accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. In fact, his gospel, the gospel of Luke, is volume one of a two-volume set, Luke-Acts, those two together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, our first three gospels are called the synoptic gospel, seen together. And John's gospel that we've been going through is different from all of that. Uh, John's gospel uh, is not listed as one of the synoptics. It's more about who Jesus is than what he did. As I've been working to prepare the next several sermons I keep coming back to this central idea that John just lifts up again and again. That is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Not so much what he did, but who is he? And the things that he does in John's gospel point to who he is. On every page of John's gospel, it seems that we see that question addressed. And at the end of John's gospel, chapter 20... Where, where he kind of teases us with a, with a first ending before he gives a little epilogue in chapter 21. He ends chapter 20 uh, with these words, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. You know, he might be saying there, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of took care of some of those. I didn't need to. He could be saying, too, that there are other things Jesus did that none of us actually recorded. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But verse 31, he says, But these are written, these things that I have put down, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John writing this book, that you may Believe in who he is. The other guys have talked more about what he's done. I want to talk to you about who he is. And who he is is a really important question because who you believe him to be will determine what you will do with him. And in today's account, in John chapter 7, we're going to see three groups of people who first decide for themselves who he is, and on the basis of that, decide what they want to do with him. And that applies to us as well. We settle that issue of who he is, and it it informs what we are going to do with him. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the central question. And as we look at John chapter 7, we're going to look first at what people say about who he is. And that begins in verses 1 through 5 with Jesus' brothers. Take a look at at what his brothers say about who he is. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. That's up north. He did not want to go about in Judea. What, What major city is in Judea? Jerusalem. Okay, that's where the festival is, okay? And so he's up north in Galilee, Judea 
and, and Jerusalem in Judea are much further south. He's up around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jerusalem is, is just about west of the top of the Dead Sea. Jordan River connects the two. All right, I'm digressing. Get back, Ken. All right. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Who is Jesus? Well, to his brothers, um, he, he was something of an embarrassment. Let me give you the setting. The Feast of the Tabernacles is one of the big three feasts of the Jewish calendar. The other two are Passover and Pentecost. These three feasts, people flock to Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem swells at that, those times of the year. And the Feast of the Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Booths. And people build these booths, or you might say huts or lean-tos. These little shacks pop up all over the country. And what they're doing is they're reenacting the wilderness wanderings under Moses. It's, it's celebrating their being brought into the land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so you see these little booths and huts and lean-tos all over the country. Now, Jesus, at the start of chapter 7, is up north in Galilee, but his brothers egg him on to go on down to the feast in Jerusalem, knowing that there are people there who want to kill him. What does that say? Well, verse 5 tells us they didn't believe in him. They thought he was a nutcase. And it goes a long way back. If you look at Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it's on uh, page 701. It says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So, big, packed house. Look what happens in verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So the latest kook to claim divine sonship or, or claim to be the Messiah is their brother. He's living under their house. How totally humiliating and embarrassing for them. So they go into this packed house and say, excuse us, we come to take our brother out of here because he's a nutcase. They're really embarrassed. So... They believe that he's got these delusions of grandeur and that he really ought to just go ahead and show himself to the world if he wants to become a public figure. You see, they've become really cynical at this point. And so who is Jesus? They have concluded he is a lunatic and needs to be put away. And so they actually set him up. Verse 1 makes it really clear that he's staying away from Judea on purpose because people there want to kill him. But verse 3 tells us they try to send him to the very place 
where people want to kill him. And verse 5 tells us the reason why. They didn't believe in him. So he's an embarrassment. Let's, let's get him dealt with. Who is Jesus? To his brothers, he's a lunatic, so put him away. What they believed about him influences what they wanted to do with him. Next, we see the Jewish leaders. Often throughout chapter 7, you see uh, Jewish leaders and Jews interchanged. And whenever it refers to the Jews here, it really is talking about the Jewish leadership, the, the religious leaders. And so Jesus um, deals with them. Verse 1 tells us they are looking for a way to take his life. Why? Because they know what he is claiming to be. They've heard about him. They have seen him in action. And they know. These are smart guys. These are really well-educated people. These are people who are steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And they see he is fulfilling them. And he's a threat to them. And so... In John chapter 2, as, as you kind of start at the beginning and bring us up to speed to where we are now, John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana and changes water into wine. That's the first of his signs that speak of who he is. And he's pointing toward a messianic age when, uh, when wine just abounds. And then uh, in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him at night to understand more of who he is. And Nicodemus is one of the leaders of the Jews, and he's taking a big risk, even coming at night. But Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You need to be born again. You need to experience rebirth. And uh, Nicodemus is trying to figure all of that out. This has to get back to the rest of the Jewish leaders. Uh, in uh, chapter 3 also, we find that John the Baptist has been testifying to who Jesus is. Um, Jesus, in chapter 4, deliberately takes his disciples through Samaria, uh, where the Jews stayed away from, because he wants to meet with this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well and explain to her that he is the Messiah. So not only is he claiming to be the Messiah, but he's also reaching out beyond the Jews to Samaritans and speaking to a Samaritan woman. He gets back to Galilee then after that and heals the royal official's son in chapter 4, and he heals him long distance. This hadn't been known of before, but uh, Jesus can heal him without even being present with him. And then in chapter 5, he heals the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, and he does it on the Sabbath. And that really gets the Jewish officials upset. Goes back up to Galilee in chapter 6 and feeds the 5,000 and announces that he is the bread of life come down from heaven. So add it all up. If you're one of the Jewish leaders, what are you going to conclude about who this guy is? He, he is dangerous. He is a radical preacher. He is gaining momentum, and he can't possibly be the Messiah because he doesn't fit who we want the Messiah to be. And so they have to conclude that he is a liar and that he has to be stopped, and so they're looking for a way to take his life. 
He's gone too far. He needs to be stopped. And so in verse 11, we find they are watching for him and they are asking where he is. And both of those verbs, watching and asking, imply this is ongoing. You know, they're, they're keeping their eye out for him. They're looking over the crowds and they keep asking, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Is he around here? In verse 15, they're amazed at his teaching and they can't figure out how he got such learning. Now, these guys went to schools for a long, long time to learn the Old Testament as well as they knew it. How did he come to uh, know it so well? Well, he's the author. I mean, you know, there it is. But their conclusion is he's a liar and a threat, so arrest him. What you believe him to be will determine what you are going to want to do with him. Brothers, he's a nutcase, so put him away. Jewish leaders, he is a liar, so arrest him. We find a third group, and these kind of are scattered throughout the chapter. I just call them observers. And we find these observers divided in their opinion of who Jesus is. In verse 12, he's a good man, some people say. Also in verse 12, he's a deceiver. In verse 20, he's demon-possessed, they say. In verses 25 to 27, we see them just trying to sort it out. Look at those verses, starting at 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly. They're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded then that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. All of these things, they're, they're, you're just kind of getting this idea. You're picking up threads of, of this discussion. They're trying to sort out who he is. Verse 30, Jesus speaks to their concerns, and there's an interesting division that happens. In verse 30, some try to seize him. In other words, they're siding with the, the Jewish leaders. He's, he's a liar, so arrest him. But in verse 31, some put their faith in him. And so people are sorting out on, on both sides of this. In verse 40, someone concludes he is the prophet. And this would be the prophet that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18. One like him would come one day. That's him. It must be him. He's got to be the prophet. In verse 41, he is the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 46, the guards say, well, he's just really, really special. Uh, verse 46, the guards are the ones that have been sent out to arrest him, and they come back empty-handed. And the Jewish leaders say, well, why don't you have him? And verse 46 is beautiful. They will, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They don't know what to do with him, but they're not going to arrest him. And so all through this chapter, we see these observers trying to sort out who he is. And the conclusion, uh, well, before that, uh, let me say this. They are all over the map in terms of who he is. I, I understand you all like maps. And so I, I thought I would seize the opportunity and, and show you one. Go ahead. There it is. There's Middle East. Okay, now we got a map. We can go on to the next slide. I just wanted you to have a map. So these observers are, are all over the map in terms of who Jesus 
is. Conclusion? They don't know who he is, so they don't know what to do with him. Because what you believe him to be will determine what you're going to want to do with him. So to the brothers, he's a lunatic, put him away. To the Jews, he's a liar, arrest him. To the observers, they don't know what he is, so they don't know what to do with him. So that's what people are saying about who he is. What does Jesus say about who he is? He gives us some clues. He talks first about the source of his teaching. If you look at verse 16... It says, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The source of his teaching tells who he is. You say, I'm coming from God. I have been sent by God. I know what I am talking about when I teach. His teaching comes from God who sent him. And so here and in verses 28 and 29, he makes it clear. He has been sent by God. And then in verse 17, he says that the way to find out where his teaching comes from is by choosing to do God's will. Get a look at verse 17 again. I think it's really a key verse. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The way to find out where Jesus' teaching comes from is by choosing to do God's will. When we choose to do God's will, he will make his will clear to us. In other words, those who just want to satisfy their curiosity may come away empty. But those who want to do God's will will find that Jesus' teaching comes from God. It's helpful for us. The start point of discipleship is wanting to do God's will. Not just to satisfy our curiosity, not just to gain head knowledge, But if we have a desire to do God's will, he will reveal his will to us step by step as we do it. If you really want to know him, commit yourself to doing his will. So Jesus talks about the source of his teaching. He comes from God. He also demonstrates who he is through miracles. In John's gospel, John uses the word signs often when he speaks of Jesus' miracles. So all of those ones I mentioned a little bit ago, you know, turning water into wine, feeding the 5,000, John calls signs because they point to who Jesus is. That's John's big concern, that you may know who he is so that you can put your trust in him. All of the miracles, all of these signs point to who he is. Jesus didn't do miracles just to impress people. He did them to show who he is. And so John uses this word signs 11 times in his gospel to talk about how they point to who Jesus is. Jesus talks about the source of his teaching. He shows who he is through the miracles. And he also claims here in this chapter to be the ultimate 
thirst quencher, the one who gives the Spirit of God. Look at verses 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus claims to be the ultimate thirst quencher and the spirit giver. It's the last day of this Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. Every day of that feast, the high priest did something special, and people would love to get themselves in a position to see it. He would leave the temple site and go to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. He would fill it with water at the pool of Siloam and, and walk back to the altar at the temple and pour that water out on the altar. And if people could get in a position where they could see the priest do it, they really counted themselves blessed. It was a wonderful thing to see. It was a big deal. It was a climactic moment in the feast. And so the priest has been doing that for seven days, and now on the last day of the feast, when the priest does that, Jesus calls out in a loud voice. Can you imagine how surprised people were to hear that? I mean, this, this is like total disruption of what's going on. And Jesus is announcing that he is the ultimate thirst quencher. These people knew what it was to be thirsty. Uh, if you've ever been to a really dry climate, um, you know that you can be in danger real quick if you get yourself away from a source of water. And so there in, in the Middle East, it was definitely that way. So people understood what it meant to be desperately thirsty. And Jesus says, I'm your solution. I'm, I'm the one who can give you what will ultimately satisfy your thirst. There is a part of us that can't ultimately be satisfied by anything else but him. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said there's a, there's a God-shaped void in each of us that only God can fill. Nothing else can fill it. It's like a puzzle piece that's missing from, from the very center of us, and, and it's God-shaped. Only he can fill it. Augustine put it this way. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Only God can fulfill that thirst, that longing. And Jesus says, that's me. I'll fulfill that for you. And not only can we find what we've been thirsty for, but what he has to give us also overflows into the lives of others through the Holy Spirit. We can bear witness through our lives to others around us. And so what has satisfied our thirst, we feel compelled to tell others can satisfy their thirst as well. Uh, there was um, a guy who, who wrote uh, an interesting book a number of years ago called Love is Now. The guy was 
a guy named Peter Gilquist. And in it, he talks about his days of campus ministry when he would go into frat houses and, and share the gospel with these frat brothers. And, and uh, there was this one guy who he just spoke to a number of times, and the guy just was never ready to put his trust in Christ. And, and finally, Peter says, so what, what's holding you back? And he said, I don't want to have to do what you're doing. I, I don't want to have to go and, and share my faith with anybody. I, I don't want to have to talk to anybody about this. I don't, I, 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 that, that all makes me really uncomfortable. And Peter said, well, you don't have to. The guy said, what? He said, well, you, I've been trying to tell you, salvation's a free gift. I mean, there's nothing you have to do. Just receive him. It, it's a gift that's being offered. Receive the gift. I mean, I don't have to do anything? No. I, I don't have to go and share my faith? No. He says, okay. Tell me how I can receive Christ, how, how I can receive this gift. And so they prayed that together, and he went straight to his frat house and told all of his friends how he didn't have to do anything to, because of, uh, you know, the salvation's a free gift. It's a wonderful thing. And so what, what satisfies our thirst can satisfy others. And when we see thirsty people, we can say, let me tell you what satisfied mine. What will fill that God-shaped void in you? John explains that what Jesus is talking about in terms of this water is the spirit who has yet to be given. He'd be sent later after Jesus is glorified. And the Holy Spirit then comes on the day of Pentecost. And in John chapter 16, verses 5 to 7, Jesus tries to tell his disciples in the upper room, and we'll see that down the road in a number of weeks or months, in the upper room discourse, he, he tries to explain to them, it's to your advantage that I go away. Well, they don't see any advantage in that at all. They don't want him to go away. But if he goes away, the Spirit comes. And what was a localized ministry becomes a universal ministry because the Holy Spirit isn't restricted by a body. He lives in our bodies and can be all over the place. Add it all up, what Jesus says about who he is. And answer the question for yourself, who is he? Who is he? It's a key question because what you believe him to be will determine what you're going to want to do with him. You know, we see something similar to this in Matthew's gospel. It's a great passage in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus puts the question to his disciples. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who are people saying I am? And they give answers about things they've heard people say about who they think he is. And then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives his famous answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here in John chapter 7, we have seen what a number of people say about who Jesus is, but we've also seen some clues Jesus gives in terms of who he is. And he's made his identity clearer and clearer, and he will continue to throughout the book of John. So what will you conclude? Because what you determine Jesus to be will also determine what you're going to want to do with him. Few people have ever put it better than C.S. Lewis. 
he said this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He wants us to decide who he is. And the choice is there for all of us. The decision is there for all of us to make. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? You get to decide. And once you've decided... Act. Do something on the basis of who you have concluded that he is because who you conclude that he is will determine what you're going to do with him. Have you made that decision? Have you come to a clear understanding of who he is and what you want to do with him? It's time to decide. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that here in John's gospel, you have made clear who Jesus is. You've also shown us how other people have struggled with that decision and have come to conclusions that have led them to do various things in response to that question of who he is. And Father, I just pray for anybody here today that's undecided about who he is. Would, would you just help that person to weigh the evidence right now and, and come to the right conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by putting our trust in him, we can know that we have eternal life. And so, Father, speak to us through this passage. Help us, Father, to live it this week. I pray that our own thirst would be so quenched that we would be just compelled to share with others what has satisfied our thirst. All for your honor and glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.